Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Charles A. Lindbergh Memorial Lecture. This prestigious event, in our own eyes at any rate, was inaugurated by the National Air and Space Museum to recognize the achievements of the wonderful pioneer Charles Lindbergh. The lecture occurs annually on or about the date that the flight took place, on or about 20, 21 May. We wish to express our gratitude to the General Electric Aircraft Engine Group for making it possible. Uh, through the generous support of General Electric, we were able to provide a series of lectures through the years. And I know that many of you, I can see by your faces, recognize your faces, many of you have been to those lectures during the course of the year, and we're very, very grateful because it permits us to bring people of truly historic significance here to the Langley Theater and have them talk about things that uh, are of direct interest to you, and perhaps best of all, have you ask them the things that are of most interest to you. This coming September, the General Electric Lecture Series will resume with the 1984-1985 season. And while I won't tell you who's going to be here, I will tell you that you'll enjoy them and we can look forward to it. Tonight, we're fortunate because we're going to deal with a subject that is of interest to us all, that of the test pilot. Now, the test pilot occupies a special place in aeronautics. Uh, even before there are flying machines, oddly enough, there are test pilots. I suppose, in a way, Lucifer was a test pilot although it didn't work out very well for him. Uh, later on, uh, the first attempts to become a test pilot were the tower jumpers, and I uh, suspect that they were more enthused than they were qualified because there was not a great amount of flight time logged in tower jumps. 200 years ago, balloonists ascended into space and it became very serious, and test piloting assumed a new role. Uh, the glider pilots of the 19th century, and certainly the Wright brothers were test pilots of the finest sense, having had some 2,000 flights in gliders before they flew the first airplane. But they were followed then again by a whole courier of test pilots, and we have a wonderful representative tonight who will explain some of it to us. At the dawn of aviation, Wilbur Wright saw the importance that went with the profession. He said, if you really wish to learn to fly, you must mount a machine and become acquainted with its tricks by actual trial. In this century, we have been benefited from great test pilots who have mounted their machines and tested them, and they've advanced aerospace technology, and you've seen some of them here over time. Uh, some not, but some that we would like to have had and haven't been here, Glenn Curtis and Jeffrey de Havilland, but some that we have had are Jimmy DeLoodle, Chuck Yeager, Neil Armstrong, and John Young, even if only pictorially for John, but we'll have him again uh, indirectly just to name a few. James Webb has said that each time a new aircraft flies, a moment of truth arrives for the designer as an assortment of previously individually and untested parts comes together, and you have to find out whether it's an integrated flying machine or not. The test pilot extends the hands of the designer into the air. Highly trained test pilots are more than just bold pilots, they must be. They convey data back with special insights, but I think more interestingly, they often overcome inherent deficiencies, unsuspected deficiencies, on the spot and bring the airplane back so that the designers can rectify what they had done. And if it were not for the test pilot, this wouldn't happen. I think perhaps most significantly, test pilots are the sole pilots who place their lives on the line every time a new aircraft takes off. Our speaker tonight comes from this unique fraternity of flyers. 
His career as a test pilot is linked inextricably with the development of the Supermarine Spitfire, that lovely airplane that everyone adores. It was the legendary aircraft of World War II. The sight and the sound of the Spitfire in the Battle of Britain in 1940 inspired the British nation in its darkest hours. Along with the hurricane, the Spitfire became an effective instrument to blunt the German attack in the, in the Hitler's invasion. Now, one important figure in this development of this extraordinary aircraft was our speaker tonight, Jeffrey Quill. Between 1936 and 1946, he flew, flew every important variant of the Spitfire, from the original prototype designed by R.J. Mitchell, a man whose legend is large and who's, from whom everyone has affection, to the updated Spitfire Mark 47 of post-war years. In the evolution of the Spitfire, it went from an aircraft that was very high-powered for its time uh, and yet was still almost docile to an advanced airplane, much more powerful airplanes, much more powerful armament, much more equipment, and yet Jeffrey Quill's task was to remain, to retain the wonderful harmonization of controls, the beauty of flight, the uh, quality of maneuver of the airplane, and as this, he succeeded. As chief test pilot, he kept the airplane as it was transformed with the latest technology. Then during a brief period in 1940, he interrupted his career to fly in the Battle of Britain with 65 Squadron. And he did this not only as a fighter pilot and carrying on those duties, but also to identify the future changes in the Spitfire. Uh, his encounter with aviation begins very early. During World War I, as a small boy, he saw an airplane land near his home. He made a solo flight after five hours of instruction, uh, five hours and 20 minutes of instruction. We, we want to be precise tonight. Uh, whenever he flew, he impressed his contemporaries with his natural aptitude for flying. His interest in the airplane led to a commission in the RAF, where in the 1930s he flew Bristol Bulldogs with number 17 squadron. In November of 1935, he joined Vickers and Supermarine at Weybridge as an assistant test pilot and made his first flight in a Spitfire in March 26, 1936. Later, as chief test pilot for the Spitfire, Jeffrey Quill played a prominent part in making the Spitfire the premier fighter of England in the, of the First World War, or the Second World War. From 1939 to 1945, there were no fewer than 52 variants of the Spitfire built, each one better for Jeffrey Quill's uh, talents. He possesses a unique insider's knowledge of this aircraft and its development, and he is also a superb author. For those of you who have not read his book, uh, Spitfire, The Test Pilot Story, I recommend it to you highly. It is truly excellent. Will you please welcome Jeffrey Quill. Mr. Boyne, ladies and gentlemen, um, when in 1927, Charles Lindbergh flew alone across the Atlantic, nonstop from Long Island to Paris, this event had a most powerful effect upon a 14-year-old schoolboy in England. Much more importantly, it also had a most powerful influence upon aviation across the world. It demonstrated that an aeroplane could fly around 3,000 miles and that, that an engine could keep running sweetly for 33 hours and that both could arrive at the planned destination. In your huge country, more than 2,000 miles across, with the journey by train from the eastern seaboard to California taking, I believe, around five days, 
um, the future possibility of the aeroplane had thus been demonstrated in the most dramatic way. The purse strings were loosened at once. Civil aviation at once started to become a serious business, a re respectable commercial enterprise, something with an almost limitless future and a source of investment for serious businessmen. Whilst there had been other and previous non-stop crossings of the North Atlantic, both by aeroplane and by airship, and other significant pioneering flights in many parts of the world, Charles Lindbergh's transatlantic flight came at exactly the right moment to act as a supreme catalyst. Now, the English schoolboy that I mentioned is standing before you now, greatly honoured uh, by your invitation to deliver the Lindbergh Memorial Lecture. Greatly honoured. My subject tonight is primarily concerned with military aviation and has a strong historical flavour, and I hope this will not be inappropriate for military aviation has always been a powerful stimulus for the advancement of commercial aviation and no doubt it will continue to play this role in the future of aerospace. Now, I must straight away explain to all that uh, I was not trained as an engineer, and uh, I have no engineering qualifications at all, but I lived for a good part of my life during those days, uh, surrounded by what I might describe as a strong smell of engineers, <laughs> and they, poor fellows also had to put up with a rather strong smell of test pilots as well. So we got to understand each other and uh, know a little bit about how we all thought. And um, I found in preparing this lecture, it's not so much of what I put into the lecture as what I had to leave out. It's a pretty big subject and I've left out a tremendous amount. And after the lecture, I hope that uh, you will be able to ask questions and perhaps to fill in some of the gaps which I've left uh, from the inadequacy of my script. But I'll be very happy to try to answer any questions that anybody likes to answer, or likes to ask. Now, my lecture is about the Supermarine Spitfire. Can I have the first slide, please? Uh, there we are. That's just the title slide. It's an aeroplane of which we in the United Kingdom are very proud, believing it to have been one of the greatest fighter aircraft of all time. And it is appropriate perhaps to show as my next slide, if I can have it up there, um, the great designer of the Spitfire, the late Reginald J. Mitchell. Now R.J as he was universally known to his staff and to his friends alike, died of cancer in June 1937. Uh, he had seen his prototype flying for just over one year, and he knew that it was performing very much as he had hoped and intended. But he never saw a, 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 a production aircraft off the line because they were not ready by the time he died. He was 42 years old when he died only, and he had been the chief designer at Supermarine since he was 25 years old, I think, and he had been responsible for the design of some 25 types of aircraft, which is perhaps a little bit a sign of the times and how the way things worked in those days. 
Now, although at the time that the Spitfire flourished, it was already true, as it still is today, that the true effectiveness of a fighter is the sum of its air vehicle performance, its performance in the air, plus that of its avionics, plus the performance of its armament. The fact is that at the time that the Spitfire was designed, avionics really comprised very little more than uh, just a, some radio and a few more complicated things like IFF, identification, friend and foe. And therefore, the real effectiveness of a fighter in those days depended upon its air vehicle performance plus the lethality of its weapons. Now, as early as 1935, the British Air Staff, that is to say the Air Force uh, staff at home, uh, had broken completely new ground by specifying a battery of eight machine guns for its new fighters, the Hurricane and the Spitfire. Now, this was a decision of very far-reaching importance, being a great stride ahead of current world practice at that time. Uh, but uh, having got that lethal argument, uh, armament established as a matter of policy, it was really the search for the optimum in air vehicle performance which preoccupied fighter designers at that time and which was the main stimulus for the associated technologies of engines, materials, structures, aerodynamics and so on. Now it was in this general field of air vehicle performance that the Spitfire was so very good. It established a supremacy in this respect at the beginning of its career, which it retained, as I hope to show later, uh, throughout its long development, production, and in-service life. Now, I'd like to go back to the origins, uh, or part of the origins, of the design of the Spitfire. It owed a great deal to the series of Schneider Trophy races and in September 1931, Britain won the Schneider Trophy for the third successive time, thus winning the trophy outright. Um, R.J. Mitchell and his team of designers at Supermarine had designed between 1925 and 1931 four racing seaplanes for the Schneider Trophy, the last three of which won it. Now the first, it's shown on my next slide, was the um, S-4, Supermarine S-4. This was Mitchell's first uh, movement into the field of racing seaplanes, and this set up a world seaplane speed record of 226 miles an hour in 1925. But it crashed, unfortunately, in Chesapeake Bay whilst practicing for the race. The S-4 was a very advanced and a very bold design of it for its day, uh, which Mitchell had produced in response to the very advanced racing designs of the successful United States team of 1923 with their Curtis racing seaplanes. The significance of that United States team was that hitherto the Snyder Trophy had been a, a regarded as a little bit of a sort of... Um, exercise for seaplanes and float planes in general and I think at that time in the United States somebody said well come on if we're going to have a race let's have a race and at that point in time they produced these purely 
unadulterated racing seaplanes. And I've got a slide with the, one of those Curtis planes here, if I can have it, please. Um, that is one of the 1923 um, uh, slider team. And um, then again, the Curtis seaplanes won the race in 1925, I think I'm right in saying, Jimmy Doolittle um, won it. And so for the 1927 race, Mitchell designed the all-metal S5 seaplane on the next slide, uh, shown there. Uh, and that had a normally aspirated but geared Napoleon engine. This aircraft won the race in Venice in Italy. And uh, on that slide, you'll see standing up there the pilot who, uh, who won it, um, S.N. Webster. And uh, he's shown there with the, with the company's uh, maintenance team. And uh, old Webby, uh, sad to say, died only about uh, just more than a month ago at a considerable age, and uh, I went to his funeral. But he won it in 1927. Now, then in 1929, um, Mitchell designed the S6 seaplane on the next slide. Um, there, now, this aeroplane was a little bit of a watershed because after the 1927 race, Mitchell had judged that the well-tried Napoleon engine had reached the limit of its power growth potential, so he persuaded that great engineer, Sir Henry Royce, to produce an engine for the 1929 race. Now, this was a bit of a step for the Henry Royce because the policy of Rolls-Royce at that time was not in any way to get mixed up with anything to do with racing. They, they didn't approve of that. They, um, they thought that uh, uh, the quality of their machinery didn't require any races to demonstrate it. So, uh, however, uh, Royce was persuaded by R.J. Mitchell to do an engine uh, for that race. And he produced, this was uh, a, a, an engine, a supercharged V12 engine, 37 litres capacity, which produced 1,900 horsepower for the 1929 race, and in 1931 produced 2,600 brake horsepower under sprint conditions for the S6Bs, which is shown on this slide, for its world speed record of 470 mph, 407 mph, set up after winning the 1931 race. Now, technologically, I've, I've shown you these slides of these seaplanes because technologically the influence of the Schneider races was very profound. For by the end of 1931, it meant that we had in Britain an aircraft design team at Supermarine of unique experience in the technologies of high-speed uh, aeronautics and an engine design team at Rolls-Royce which had brought the supercharged, liquid-cooled V-12 engine of low frontal area to a new pitch of perfection and performance. So, it now remained for these two teams to get together in what was obviously the next logical step, the design of a fighter aeroplane.
Now, the first attempt resulted, as far as the supermarine was concerned, in a false start. In 1931, the Air Ministry in London issued a specification for a new single-seat fighter for the Royal Air Force, designated the F-730. Now, this sparked off intense competition amongst the British aircraft companies. Uh, you, you will, most of you know there was quite a serious recession at that time, and everybody was hard up for work, so there was a good scramble to get them to win this competition. Now, three air monoplanes and two biplane designs were submitted, and Mitchell's design was the Type 224. On the next slide, please. I beg your pardon, that's, uh, I've got ahead of myself. That is a, sh no, no, come back to that one. That is the, the Rolls-Royce engine, which produced 2,600 uh, 2, horsepower for the 1931 Snyder Trophy race. And uh, this, the development of that engine was to have a very big impact on the future fighter scene in Britain. Now, uh, let's come on to the next slide now. Uh, that is the F-730 aeroplane, and it was ordered in prototype form. One prototype was ordered and flown. It made its first flight in February 1934, and it was not a success. Being it was below estimates in speed and climb, and it was overweight. Now, it also had um, a rather peculiar cooling systems, uh, evaporative cooling, which was an attempt to try and uh, uh, solve the problem of uh, cooling drag, which was becoming very seriously a serious matter at those times. And the failure of that aeroplane really meant that the, although the monoplane had uh, dominated the Schneider Trophy races since about 1925 or 26, um, still the technology was not sufficiently advanced to be able to use the monoplane configuration for the much broader and more difficult and general requirements of, of a fighter aircraft. And the, so the, in the 19, this aeroplane was a failure, and by mid-1934, Mitchell had already, as it were, thrown it away and started work on a radically redesigned version of this 224 design. Failure was not a concept which came into Mitchell's uh, way of thinking. Uh, he was a Staffordshire man, born in uh, what are known as the general area, known as the Potteries in England, and he had all this sort of gritty determination was fairly typical of the industrial midlands of England and I personally have always taken the view that the failure of this aeroplane was the best thing that ever happened because it, it riled old Mitchell and he was jolly well going to see that uh, the next one wasn't a failure. It really gave some, gave, put some stimulus into him. Now Mitchell worked on his revised design and here I'd like another slide please. Um, that is uh, a series of the revised designs. You can, I'll leave it up there for you to look at a bit. He worked on these revised designs against a steadily worsening international situation in Europe. In May 1933, 
the British Foreign Office in London had warned the government that Germany, the Germany of Adolf Hitler was rearming, particularly in the air. Then, in October 1933, tension mounted as Germany withdrew from the disarmament conference at Geneva and left the League of Nations. Still fresh in every Englishman's mind at that time were the chilling words which a leading British statesman, Stanley Baldwin, had uttered in 1932, which were, the bomber will always get through. On the 28th of June 1934, the Geneva talks collapsed. In the wake of Germany's departure from, from Geneva, the British government had initiated a comprehensive survey of the worst deficiencies of the nation's defences, which were, I may say, pretty deficient at that time, and agreement was quickly reached that absolute priority must be given to air defence. Within days of the collapse of the Geneva talks, the Air Ministry was thus able to present the, the government, present the Cabinet, with an expansion scheme for the Royal Air Force, which was called Scheme A. This called for an additional 41 squadrons to be formed and equipped by the 31st of March, 1939, and it was approved by the government and announced to Parliament on the 19th of July, 1934. Now, seven days after this, on July the 26th, 1934, Mitchell's redesign of the Type 224 was submitted to the Air Ministry in Supermarine Specification Number 425A. Now, Mitchell's new proposal, and you see uh, some of the stages of the, of the design there, eliminated the um, anhedral centre section um, and um, thus reducing the span to 39 feet, the span of the F-730 uh, I'm talking about, and it removed the trousered landing gear and replaced it with a retractable undercarriage. In the early revised designs, the steam-cooled or evaporatively cooled Goshawk engine was retained, the wing was still straight-tapered, and the armament was 4.303 machine guns. Now, you can see the sort of various stages there, um, and during all this time, uh, Rolls-Royce had been working since early 1933 on the design of a new supercharged V12 engine of 27 litres, or 1650 cubic inch capacity. Their target was a power output of 1,000 horsepower. In the same month as Scheme A was announced, which was July 1934, a development model of this engine, this new engine, known as the PV-12, which stands for Private Venture 12, which simply means that it was at that stage company-funded and not built under contract by the Air Ministry, um, was success it successfully completed its first 100-hour type test on the bench. And this engine, of course, was later destined for undying f fame as the Merlin. Mitchell was very quick to appreciate the potential of this new engine to give a great increase in performance to his new fighter, and he threw the, the old Goshawk engine overboard. And in early December 1934, 
the Board of Vickers Limited, which was the holding company, the, the main company which owned supermarines, um, they voted the sum of £10,000, which was about $50,000 in, in those days, to enable Mitchell to proceed with his new design, which was designated the Type 300. Thus, for a short time, both aircraft and engine were proceeding on a company-funded basis. Now, the Air Ministry was clearly impressed with Mitchell's latest proposals, and a contract uh, was placed with Supermarine on the 1st of December 1934 for the building of a single prototype aircraft for delivery by the 1st of October 1935 at a price of £10,000, which, as I said, is about $50,000 um, in those days. I wish it was now. Um, <laughs> um, a formal specification, the F-734, dated the 3rd of January 1935, was issued, and the subsequent design changes uh, which would give the Type 300 the very distinctive features which the world would later identify with the Spitfire, namely the elliptical wing shape and the eight guns spaced apparently unevenly across the wing, and the asymmetric arrangement of the radiator and the oil cooler were all to be added during 1935. Now, I'd like another slide now, because this... Uh, I, I, next slide, please, will show the, virtually the final design for the prototype Spitfire. Um, during 1934, the Directorate of Armament Development at the Air Ministry had established by tests a very interesting point, and that is that for a fighter to shoot down an all-metal bomber flying at 180 mph, and this was the sort of threat which was obviously brewing up in Germany, um, and if, they were to, if the fighter was to destroy it in a two-second firing pass, which was all that was considered to be tactically likely to be available, it would have to pump in not less than 256 rounds of uh, 303 ammunition in order to destroy the, the bomber. Now, simple arithmetic simply showed that if you're talking about a, a machine gun armament with a roughly a thousand rounds per minute firing rate per gun, you needed therefore eight guns in order to have a reasonable chance of destroying a bomber in a two-second firing pass. And so, as early as 1935, eight guns for the new fighters became Royal Air Force policy. Now, both Cam, Sidney Cam, who was the chief designer at Hawkers, and Reg Mitchell at Supermarine, both agreed, I think with a certain amount of uh, misgiving, but they both agreed to incorporate eight guns in their prototypes. And eight guns the Spitfire, finally decided the, this famous elliptical wing shape, which you see on this design, um, 
because previous designs had been based on a straight taper, Mitchell was absolutely determined that he was going to have a very thin wing on his aeroplane, and he specified 13% thickness cord ratio at the root and 6% at the tip, and that was a very thin wing for those days, and it also, thin wings, rather went against all the sort of uh, accepted aerodynamic wisdom of the time. But he was going to have it. And he instructed his staff that no way, never mind how many guns had to go in, no way was that wing to be second beyond that, those figures that I've mentioned. And therefore, uh, it being a, th a thickness cord ratio, it really meant that to get those guns in, you needed as much cord as far out span-wise as possible. And it was much more difficult to do that with a straight taper. And so somebody drew out this rather elegant uh, elliptical wing. And uh, it's always been said that uh, at some, uh, uh, there are many discussions about this, and when old Mitchell, they were trying to get him to agree to this and so on, and he said, I don't give a damn what shape the wing is, as long as you don't interfere with my 16% thickness cord ratio. And uh, so I don't think it was anything to do with trying to draw a beautifully sort of artistic curve. There were good practical reasons for that shape. Now, two more changes of very great importance occurred during 1935. Um, the first was the adoption of, by Rolls-Royce, of glycol cooling in place of the uh, old steam cooling arrangement. Uh, now this resulted in the need for much less coolant to be carried in the system, and it resulted in a nearly 50% reduction in the required radiator area. That, of course, was made a very great advantage. The second was the invention by a chap called Dr. Frederick Meredith, who was a scientist at the Royal Aircraft establishment at Farnborough of the ducted radiator system. By enclosing the radiator in a what was known as a divergent convergent duct, the assembly could be half buried in the structure of the aeroplane. And the intake area was thus greatly reduced and the discharge air, which was taking the heat out of the radiator, was accelerated backwards to produce, in fact, a, a, a propulsive effect, effect, thereby further reducing the drag. Now, Mitchell at once uh, adopted this for his aeroplane, and uh, all these changes during 1935 caused some delay in the completion of the prototype, but on the 5th of March, 1936, K5054 was ready for flight, and I should have a picture of it here, I think. If I can have the next slide. That, that picture of K5054 was taken on the morning of the first flight, wheeled it out of the hangar and stuck its tail up on a trestle, and somebody took a picture of it, and uh, there it is. And it wasn't painted, it was just in its uh, bare metal finished exactly as it came out of the works, and that was the very first Spitfire that ever was. Now, this aeroplane made its first flight um, on the 5th of March, 1936, at Eastleigh Airport, 
Southampton, England, piloted by J. Mutt Summers. Joseph Summers, we always used to call him Mutt for some reason or another. And he was the chief test pilot. He was very far from being a Mutt, I may tell you. Um, he was the chief test pilot of Vickers Aviation Limited, and he was my boss. Um, now, Mutt Summers was a very remarkable chap. Um, he was very much a child of his own aviation generation. Uh, when he joined the company some years before and became the chief test pilot, which was, I may say, on the death of the previous chief test pilot, um, uh, um, that was the days when new aircraft, prototype aircraft, were produced at incredibly short time. I mean, about every six months, company, you know, in a highly competitive situation, they were knocking out these prototypes at a great rate and flying them. Sometimes they got an order for them, sometimes they didn't, mostly not. Um, and so old Matt Summers got uh, clocked up an incredible amount of uh, experience in testing new prototype aircraft, and he became a very shrewd judge of an aeroplane. He was a remarkable chap. He was great. I've, he, uh, I learned a tremendous amount from him, and he was a very good boss for me. And he was also a great friend of Jimmy Doolittle's. And, um, they, they, you know, when he came over here, he and Jimmy Doolittle used to go out together on the town, I think, and, uh, and vice versa when Jimmy Doolittle used to come over to England. Anyway, uh, oh, much dead now, but that is. Now, I, at the age of 24, had recently left the Royal Air Force after five years of service at this point in order to join the company as assistant to Mutt on experimental <coughs> flight programs. So I had my first flight in the aeroplane on the 25th of March, 1936, which was about 21 days after Mutt made the first flight on, uh, on it, and by which time he'd also made several preliminary flights. But he had other problems. Uh, we had a whole lot of new aircraft coming out. There was a new bomber program up at Weybridge and so on. So uh, I was very fortunate um, as a very young and inexperienced pilot to be left uh, very largely uh, with this uh, aeroplane. And uh, also there was another chap who flew on the program, was a great friend of mine, George Pickering. He was later killed. But um, that is. Now, the old Spitfire, that first prototype really handled beautifully and it instilled an immediate feeling of confidence. Uh, I felt very confident in it and um, it, it, it was performing pretty well but Mitchell had set his sights on a speed of 350 miles an hour at the engine's full throttle height of about 18,000 feet and my first allotted task, the real job, was to measure the performance and the first results were very disappointed, for I was getting only about 335 miles an hour. Uh, we tried very hard at Supermarine to, uh, I think I can have the next slide, please, and we have a slightly better picture of the aeroplane. Uh, we tried very hard to um, find out what, you know, if there must be some hidden source of drag. And old Reg Mitchell was a very worried man at this time. Um, and then suspicion fell upon the propeller when it was realized that the helical speed of the T 
tips, the propeller tips, was penetrating well into the compressibility or the Mark number region. And as a result of that, uh, the supermarines redesigned the propeller very carefully and, uh, and very radically. And we, when I flew this redesigned propeller, and I may say we flew a few others as well, um, we, uh, we, that new propeller gave us in one flight an extra 13 miles an hour, and I turned in a speed of 349 mph at 18,000 feet. And this satisfied R.J. Mitchell, and the aircraft was sent for its official acceptance trials uh, at the Royal Air Force uh, Test Centre at Martlesham Heath. Incidentally, um, of course, we were worked very closely in with Rolls-Royce during all this time, and old Bill Lappin, who was a well-known character in Rolls-Royce, had, had uh, bet R.J. Mitchell that he wouldn't make 350 miles an hour. Well, when I turned in... Uh, a speed of 349 miles an hour. I think the technical office got at the figures and started correcting them again. It came to 349 and a half miles an hour. <laughs> and um, so old Bill Lappin paid up on the bet on, on that. Old Mitchell pocketed the money. So uh, now, meanwhile, during at this time, the international situation in Europe was worsening still further. For only two days after the Spitfire's first flight, the German army had reoccupied the demilitarized zone of the Rhineland, which was in flagrant breach of the Versailles Treaty. Uh, this caused a very great stir, uh, and thus I think it's fair to say that the Spitfire was born into the virtual inevitability of war. However, in the most secret circles of government in London, the gloom engendered by Stanley Baldwin's prediction was slowly giving way to a cautious optimism that perhaps the bomber need not always get through. Experiments started by Dr. Robert Watson Watt in February 1935 had led to the invention of what was later to be called radar. It was still very much in its infancy, but by March 1936, the experimental station set up at Bordsey on the coast of Suffolk, England, was able to report that it had tracked an aircraft out over the sea to a distance of 75 miles. Hopes were therefore being expressed that with before long it would be possible to measure accurately the distance and the bearing of incoming aircraft at a range of at least 50 miles. Now this was a breakthrough of incalculable importance and it was very happily timed. For there is something I've always felt rather uncanny, almost redolent of divine intervention about that month of March 1936, which saw the birth of the Spitfire and the concurrent discovery of the key element which would enable it to do the job for which it was designed in defense of the country so very effectively. Now, when we delivered the airplane to Martlesham in uh, 1930, I think it was in May 1936, the burning question at the time, as far as the air ministry was concerned, was could this airplane be flown 
by the average service pilot. A lot of people thought, you know, this is evolved from these sort of great Schneider racing things and only the most expert pilots could fly it. So this was a very important question. And as soon as the airplane arrived at Martlesham on the 28th of May, 1936, this question was put very bluntly to White Lieutenant Humphrey Edwards-Jones, now a very old friend of mine, who was then commanding the fighter flight there. He had one flight in the Spitfire um, and brought it back. And the next thing is somebody said he wanted on the telephone, and uh, so he went to the telephone, and there was almost the most senior air marshal in the, in the air ministry on the phone, and he said, uh, EJ, which is what we all called him, so I don't want to know anything about this flight. I want, one, I want you to answer me one question, yes or no. Is this aeroplane going to be flyable by the... Is it going to be suitable for this ordinary run of the service pilots? And old EJ took a deep breath and swallowed a couple of times and said, yes, sir. And that was on the basis of one flight, and it's just as well, well for us all that he did, I think. Um, he incidentally became an air marshal himself in due course and finished up by commanding the second tactical air force in Europe. Anyway, that is. Now, on the 3rd of June, 1936, therefore, on a basis of a very small amount of official testing at Martlesham, they hadn't had time to do very much, um, a contract was placed with Supermarines for 310 production Spitfires. And on the same day, a contract was placed with Hawkers for 600 Hurricanes. Now, it is to the great credit, in my opinion anyway, of the Royal Air Force that they acted with such decisive dispatch in this matter. Uh, and, I, or, and I'm sure many people thought at the time they acted with such indecent haste. But they placed the contract and, uh, and so everybody was able to get on with it. The job then started of turning Mitchell's great technical achievement into an effective and lethal fighting machine and getting it into quantity production. Now this took quite a while and there were many, many problems which I can't take time to deal with now. But if I can have the next slide, it'll be a picture of the first uh, production Spitfire, the Mark 1A, that was how the aircraft came off the line. And I flew the first aeroplane, K9787, on May the 15th, 1938, which was just less than two years after contract and which was six months behind contract schedule. And that took a bit of laughing off. But uh, there it was. Now, the first Spitfire was delivered to number 19 fighter squadron Royal Air Force at Duxford in Cambridgeshire on August the 4th, 1938, which, strangely enough, was the 24th anniversary of the outbreak of World War I, um, as a matter of interest. Now, early squadron experience with the Spitfire produced a, a mixed reaction from the Royal Air Force. The pilots loved it. It was the fastest aeroplane in service anywhere in the world, and it had a distinct excitement and sort of charisma about it, uh, which really was all its own. And th they loved it, of course they did. I mean, there would have been something wrong with them if they hadn't. But nevertheless, <laughs> it, <laughs> it was regarded with a certain suspicion 
at some higher command levels. It was not so easy to fly as the Hurricane. It had a worse view over the nose for deflection shooting. Night flying was more difficult, and especially was it more difficult for the ground crews to maintain, and battle damage was expected, and I think could be demonstrated to be much more difficult and expensive to repair. It was a much higher technology structure than the average run of airplanes in those days, and was considered therefore to be somewhat vulnerable. Now on the credit side, it was about 30 miles an hour faster than the Hurricane, it had a better rate of climb and a better turning circle at combat speeds. But still, there were many influential people in the system at that time who thought that the Spitfire's superior performance had been bought at too high a price in other respects. Now, like the Hurricane, the Spitfire had been conceived primarily as a home defense fighter for the interception and destruction of enemy bombers. Fighter-to-fighter combat in the English sky against high-performance German single-seat fighters was hardly considered a likely eventuality. But when, in fact, fighter-to-fighter engagements did occur over Dunkirk after the German breakthrough into Belgium, Holland and France had won them forward airfields and bases from which to operate the fighters, then the supreme importance of the Spitfire's extra performance was at once amply demonstrated. I don't think anybody invented the word radar at that time, but RDF station was supposed to stand for radio direction finding, and it was hoped that that was sort of spoofing the enemy into thinking it was a radio business and not what in fact it was. These were developed in Britain before the war. They were an absolutely vital and key element in the success of that battle. Their ability to identify, those are the antennae from, there were these radar stations dotted round the coast, and that's a typical uh, picture of the antennae. You saw those masts sticking up around the place. Um, their ability to identify the forming up of big enemy formations while still on the other side of the channel, and plot their course and distance as they approached the coast and to estimate the heights and approximate numbers enabled the fighter controllers on the ground to vector our fighters onto the enemy raids, thus eliminating the need for wasteful standing patrols. And this was what provided a rigid economy of force in an already overstretched uh, Royal Air Force Fighter Command. Without these RDF stations and without the fighter control system and the fighter controllers who really ran this battle, the battle could not have been won. Now it is perhaps difficult uh, for those who did not live in England through those really desperate autumn days of 1940, and perhaps even more difficult for those of later generations to quite appreciate the feelings of the British people when suddenly and unexpectedly and after a good many hundred years they found themselves standing alone with backs to the wall facing a determined and ruthless and extremely well-armed enemy. Under Winston Churchill's inspired leadership a remarkable spirit of fierce defiance spread through the country and united the people who rallied, rallied strongly 
to the man who had promised them nothing but blood, toil, sweat and tears. Therefore, when the Royal Air Force gained its decisive victory in September 1940, it was natural that in the tide of relief and national thanksgiving, the hurricane and the spitfire should become, as it were, absorbed into the folklore of Britain. If the spitfire had never done anything more after the Battle of Britain, if it had never flown again nor fired another shot in anger, it would still have been sure of its honoured place in the history of the country. But in fact, it did a great deal more. It became the only fighter on the Allied side to be in full production and frontline service from the very first day of the war in September 1939 through to the German surrender in May 1945 and the Japanese surrender in August 1945. As the war progressed, the basic operational scenarios changed rapidly and dramatically. New theatres of war were opened up. Mediterranean, Middle East, Southeast Asia, Far East, Pacific. New threats presented themselves, new tactics evolved, new weapons were developed and enemy aircraft improved in performance and lethality and had to be matched and outfought. The history of the Spitfire development after the Battle of Britain is really the story of how it and how its Rolls-Royce Merlin and Griffin engines responded to these changing scenarios and stayed in the front line of the battle throughout the whole period of hostilities. The scope of the technical development achieved with the Spitfire, a little of which I hope to tell you about, during its service life is really the lasting tribute to the excellence of R.J. Mitchell's original design. Also, it is a fitting tribute to the memory of Joseph Smith, if I can have the next slide please, who took over as chief designer after Mitchell's death in 1937 and who really masterminded the subsequent spectacular development programs of the Spitfire. Joe Smith was a, a very practical he was a, a, a Midlander as well. He was a really practical engineer. And um, uh, he had tremendous drive and tremendous guts. And uh, he really did a remarkable job. I wish I could tell you more about it, but uh, I can't. There's no more time. Now, a total of 52 operational variants of the Spitfire went into production and service. 52. And whilst some of these comprised only minor or detailed um, variations. Many of them were fundamental design developments giving great increases in performance and in fighting power. In addition to the main line of RAF fighters, there was a line of photographic reconnaissance Spitfires known as PRs and also the naval carrier-borne fighters which were called CFIRs. And a grand total uh, of 22,750 aircraft were finally produced. You may remember I told you that we started off with a contract for 310. Um, and uh, I well remember that a few years ago I got an invitation from the systems, the DOD systems management course at Fort Belvoir if I would come and uh, talk to them about the Spitfire program. 
And I started my talk by thanking them for the compliment of referring to it as a program, which implies that it was all uh, sort of carefully planned. But I, I pointed out that it was, uh, it was just something that happened, and nobody quite knows how it happened, but we did build 22,750 of them. Um, now, to illustrate the total span of development, it is interesting to compare the Mark I Spitfire, the, the picture which I just showed you, which was the version, the first version to come into production, and the version which, together with the Mark II, which was almost identical, uh, we, was the version which fought in the Battle of Britain, to compare it with the last of the line, which was a naval aircraft, the Seafire 47. Um, now, this latter aircraft, next slide, please, um, had a maximum gross takeoff weight of about 12,500 pounds, and it was carried on the same wing area, and it therefore roughly doubled the wing loading. Its Griffin engine gave 2,350 horsepower, uh, nearly in its standard version, we, we used to squeeze a bit more out of it sometimes, uh, which was nearly 2.3 times the power of the Mark I's Merlin III. The maximum rate of climb had almost doubled, its range had increased threefold, and its 420mm cannon, which you can see is sticking out there, um, fired more than double the weight of projectiles per second to the Mark I's 8.303 machine guns. Now, in all up weight, the C547 was equivalent, uh, I'm talking about its normal maximum takeoff weight, it was equivalent to the Mark I carrying 32 passengers, each with his little bit of lead. <laughs> and if I, on the next slide, I've got a picture of them all. Um, and uh, that is, uh, in fact, now if you can imagine all those chaps squeezed into a Mark I Spitfire, and it was quite a squeeze to get one person in there. Um, that, that, that's an illustration of, 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 of what happened. And I, I'm going to leave that slide up for a little while, so that uh, you'll see there's a sort of comparative table, if anybody's interested to read it. And, uh, of the various characteristics of the Mark I against the Seafire 47. Now, it's impossible for me in the time to deal with all the many branches of the family tree and all the things that happened in between times, but I have to be very selective and uh, try and deal with a few highlights. Um, now, the first is the Spitfire Mark V. The Mark V Oh, well, let me say it this way. After the Battle of Britain, the German tactics changed and they switched their main effort to night bombing raids on London and other major population centres. And this was popularly known at home as the Blitz. And it caused the air defence role to switch largely to night fighters because primarily it was a night, uh, it was a night assault. And therefore, there's great development in night fighter tactics and radar and all that sort of thing, but that's another story. Um, now, as the pressure, therefore, came off the day fighter force, the new commander-in-chief of Royal Air Force Fighter Command, Air Marshal Sir William Schulte Douglas, decided to move fighter command from, an, from a defensive to an offensive posture and he called it leaning towards the enemy. Accordingly, a series of offensive operations consisting of daylight bomber operations on targets across the channel, heavily escorted by Spitfires, 
um, and also w w big sweeps of uh, s wings of Spitfires, large numbers of Spitfires sweeping over the enemy territory, just generally making a noise and uh, challenging the enemy to come up and fight. These were laid on and it, they were flown almost daily between 1941 and 42. Now these operations of course at once emphasized the requirement for more fuel, more range, heavier caliber guns, more altitude performance and speed and rate of climb. Uh, when the, during the period of these sweeps the boys were usually operating at their extreme range and they had, that was a tactical disadvantage obviously and they had a number of problems so we had to improve a number of things on the aircraft. So in 1941 appeared this Mark V aeroplane which exploited the greater power especially at altitude of the Rolls-Royce Merlin 45 engine which was pushing out about 1470 horsepower at that time. And the airplane had jettisonable external fuel tanks to increase the range of either 30 or 45 gallons capacity and it was armed. Uh, we, we, that's when we really introduced cannon armament, we two 20 millimeter cannon, which took a lot of business to, before we could get them to work. And this was the first major fighter development to go into large scale service and at home it became the standard equipment of a much expanded Royal Air Force Fighter Command which included the three Eagle Squadrons from the, of the United States Volunteers which I mentioned just now. They, by this time they were formed into, into sort of US squadrons. They were in the Royal Air Force, they wore Air Force uniform and uh, they only got Air Force pay, poor chaps, but um, uh, there was. They fought alongside the Royal Air Force. Um, now overseas the Mark V was deployed in the Desert Air Force in North Africa and as far afield as Australia and the defense of Darwin. In 1942 the Spitfire V's were supplied to the US Army Air Forces in Europe and in the Tunisia campaign which followed Operation Torch and later in Sicily and in Italy. And about 600 Mark V airplanes, have I got the Mark V picture up? I haven't, no, I'm sorry. Can we have the next slide please? There's the Mark V, and it's uh, in its desert camouflage there. Of course, the ones at home weren't in that camouflage, but, and it's got its um, shortened wingtips, which was in order to give it a little bit more maneuverability. Now, in, in, in 42, the Fives were supplied to the United States Army Air Forces in Europe and the Tunisia campaign following Operational Torch, Operation Torch, and later in Sicily and Italy. About 600 Mark Fives were supplied to the United States forces on a thing called reverse lease land and in all time, in all together we, about 6,000 Mark V's were produced. Now during the, now I want to talk about the photographic reconnaissance uh, aircraft. Um, during the few years preceding the war, the um, Secret Service, or the SIS, the Secret Intelligence Service, popularly called the Secret Service, had some urgent and fairly obvious requirements for clandestine strategic air reconnaissance. Now, unfortunately, aerial photography in the Royal Air Force had progressed really very little since the end of World War I. It had become a slight sort of adjunct to the Army Cooperation Squadrons, but nothing much had been done about it. So long-range strategic photographic reconnaissance capabilities simply did not exist. 
Now it happened that a very energetic civilian entrepreneur by the name of Sidney Cotton, who was an Australian by birth, was interested, was sort of running, uh, trying to make a living in commercial aerial survey work. And it came about, as these things do come about, that the British Secret Service employed him secretly to photograph targets of strategic significance in Nazi Germany by subterfuge and stealth. And of course, if they caught old Cotton, the uh, foreign officer would know absolutely nothing about it, whatever. Um, but he was doing this. Well, he was using a Lockheed 12A aeroplane, an American aeroplane, and he also went out to photograph Italian installations in North Africa operating from Malta. And whilst he was there, he met a young Air Force officer called M.V. Longbottom. Now, um, Longbottom was inevitably known as Shorty, or, or <laughs> words to that effect. Um, and um, uh, he was a fine chap, I may say, and uh, he became a great friend of mine. But Cotton and Longbottom foresaw the need for efficient long-range aerial photography as a basic and vital source of intelligence. And with a result that Longbottom put forward a long memorandum to the Air Council, the Air Ministry, the very top level of the Air Ministry in 1939, proposing the use of the highest performance fighter, which of course meant the Spitfire at that time, with all armaments and guns removed, extra fuel tanks put in and equipped with remotely operated vertical cameras mounted in the fuselage. And it would rely entirely on its height and speed to avoid detection and interception. Now, um, Shorty Longbottom, incidentally, eventually became a test pilot at Vickers, and he was, sadly, towards the end of the war, he was killed in, a, in an accident. But it was a very foreseeing document. I've, I've read the whole memorandum, it still exists, and he really did put his finger on, uh, on something which was uh, of very great significance. Contracts were placed, therefore, with Supermarine to develop photographic reconnaissance Spitfires. All sorts of problems of camera freezing and condensation of lenses and goodness knows what were encountered, but these were soon solved, or reasonably soon solved, and eventually the whole leading-edge structure of the Spitfire wing was converted into an integral fuel tank, thus more than doubling the internal tankage of the aircraft. And this became known as the PR Mark IV. Uh, I've got a slide here, if, you, if I can have it. In point of fact, I regret to say that isn't a PR Mark IV, it's a slightly later version, but that is roughly what it looked like. You see it's got a completely clean wing, no armament, nothing at all. The cameras are in the fuselage there, you have to take my word for that. And um, uh, you can see the change to the nose shape of the aircraft because we had to fit it has a very long endurance, that thing. It used to fly very long sorties and hours and hours, and it had to have extra oil, and we had to bulge this, the oil tank at, at that position of the nose. Now, that actually is a PR Mark 11, which is a slightly later version. Now, this led on to other and higher performance marks of photographic reconnaissance aircraft with pressure cabins and improved camera installations. And Cotton's early 
rather irregular sort of private army unit which was uh, recently formed it soon got absorbed into the command structure of the Royal Air Force and it became a regular unit known as the PRU, the Photographic Reconnaissance Unit. These chaps flew daily sorties into deep into enemy territory in all theatres of war and their contribution to Allied intelligence was enormous. They flew at very great heights alone in the early days with no cockpit heating. They had it pretty rough, but of course eventually we got all that going. And it was, for instance, a photographic reconnaissance Spitfire which first spotted and photographed a V-2 rocket on the ground at Pinamunda during its early trials. You've got a V-2 rocket in the museum here. If I can have the next slide. Um, how do I put this? I, I think you can see the V-2. Where that arrow is, that is the V-2 rocket up there. And there's a transporter there. That was uh, the first uh, uh, the first spotting. Now the next slide. Um, that's a high-level photograph. And in that ring, there was something which was deemed to be a suspicious object. So a low-level sortie was laid on with oblique cameras. And uh, if I can have the next slide. Um, it showed up that there were here um, two aerials. And these, in fact, were the aerials which the um, Germans were using to, uh, they were throwing a beam across and for guiding their night bombers. And they were able to put this beam onto any target they liked. And uh, so that was identified by photographic reconnaissance and duly dealt with. And, um, uh, Another slide, I think this shows a... Um, oh, uh, yes, can I have the next one, please? Yes, that's a, that's a radar antenna on top of a cliff near Dieppe, and um, it was spotted by a low-level oblique camera, and uh, that was also duly dealt with. Uh, but uh, the, I mean, this thing was going on daily and daily, and all over the place, a massive amount of, uh, of photographic reconnaissance. Now, the last of the photographic reconnaissance aircraft is called the PR-19. It comes on the next slide, and uh, there it is. It's in Swedish marking, strangely enough. That's because um, after the war, we sold about 50 of these things to the Swedes, and they used them for their own purposes. And um, it, was a, it was a marvelous airplane, that very long range, very high performance, went at a great height, pressurized, and air-conditioned and so on, and uh, Murray White, who used to run our company out here, was uh, were out in Sweden for a good long time looking after those airplanes. Now, I want to turn now to, back to come back to the fighters. These were the unarmed photographic reconnaissance aircraft, and let's come back to the fighters. In the course of the Spitfire's development life, there were two big jumps in performance. I like to call them quantum jumps. The first was the introduction of the Spitfire Mark IX, powered with the Rolls-Royce Merlin 60 series engines, which had developed two-stage, two-speed superchargers with an intercooler. And that was a very big step forward in supercharger technology. And the second was the introduction of the Spitfire Mark XIV, 
which had the Rolls-Royce Griffin engine of 10 litres greater capacity than the Merlin and to which was applied the same supercharger technology. And I illustrate these two quantum jumps with, with this slide. Um, that is the performance of the, uh, the one on the, the green on the left is the performance of the first Spitfire Mark I and the, the first red curve shows the jump when the Mark IX came in and the second one, another big jump uh, with the Mark XIV and those were the, what I call the quantum jumps. Now, just before the war, let's talk about these airplanes, just before the war in 1939, somebody had the good sense to go very carefully through the German patent specifications. And what they found suggested that a lot of work was going on in Germany directed towards very high altitude bombers equipped with pressure cabins and all the other devices required for that sort of thing. Now this implied a threat to the, to the United Kingdom that the Germans might be able to bomb Britain from heights uh, beyond the effective reach of our fighters of those days. So this led to thoughts of very high altitude fighters uh, with pressure cabins for the pilots and very high altitude engines capable of getting the fighters up to the required altitudes for interception. However, the British air staff reaction to this possible threat was not entirely defensive because they considered that two could play this game and therefore a requirement for a pressurized version of the Wellington bomber was written. Can I have the next slide, please? Um, giving further stimulus to Rolls-Royce to develop these very high-altitude, high-performance engines. That is the old Wellington. A dreadful thing it was, really, but that was, it was, it, um, it did work. But uh, the requirement subsided, but we built, I think, six of those. Um, and uh, so that provided the stimulus uh, to, to develop these engines. Now, by 1940, two speed superchargers existed for the Merlin 20 and Merlin, uh, Merlin 10 engines. Indeed, I was flying one experimentally in the Spitfire in March 1940. But now Rolls-Royce went to stage further with two-stage two-speed supercharging, a very, very fundamental step forward uh, with very complicated intercoolant systems and so on. And um, this engine, the Merlin 60 series, and I'll show it on this next slide, um, I, I haven't got any, but you can see that all this, uh, there's the intercooler up there, and all this business is all supercharger and carburetors at the back. And uh, this engine um, was applied to a Spitfire 5C airplane and was designated, the, became the Spitfire Mark 9. It was rushed into production. The early conversions were being done at both Supermarine in Southampton and Rolls-Royce's experimental shop up at Hucknall, and then full production at Southampton and Birmingham, and a total of 6,656 Mark 9s were produced, and they served at home and in all overseas theatres. Now, um, the appearance of the Mark 9, and I've got a slide of it, I think, the next one, with any luck, Yes, that is, uh, well, as a matter of fact, that is a, sl a slight development of the Mark 9 called the Mark 8, but for all intents and purposes, that is a Mark 9. And this 
when it appeared in the skies over northern France and Belgium and Holland, it restored the tactical initiative to fighter command, which they had lost to the FW-190. The FW-190 could easily outfight the Spitfire Fives, and the chaps were having a very bad time. And this airplane straightened the matter out. Now, um, later, the Merlin 60 series engines, 61s, 64s, and so on, were produced under license in the United States by Packard. And of course they were used in the uh, P-51B and a lot of them were shipped over to Britain and we built something like a 1,064 Mark 9s with Packard built Merlins and those airplanes were called Mark 16 for some reason or another but essentially they were Mark 9 with a Packard built Merlin. Uh, the, um, let's now come to the second quantum jump which was the Mark 14. And we have to come back for a moment to the Schneider Trophy of 1929 and 1931. The Rolls-Royce R-Type 60-degree V12 supercharged engine of 37 litres capacity, which had produced 2,600 horsepower under sprint conditions um, and had been produced by uh, old Mitchell persuading Sir Henry Royce to break his company rule and get down and build a racing engine. In, in 1938 and 1939, Rolls-Royce were anticipating a future need for an engine of higher power than the Merlin. They, the Merlin was doing fine and it was going to develop, it had a lot of potential, but sooner or later somebody was going to say they wanted a bit more power. So they decided to resurrect this, uh, the old R-type engine in production form. Um, it would be called the Griffin, and it was of 10 litres greater capacity than the Merlin. And Joe Smith, our chief designer, recognising that the good biggin would eventually beat the good littleton, uh, at once set about the problem of installing this much larger and heavier engine within the tight lines of the Spitfire. A lot of people thought it wouldn't be possible, but it was done. And uh, on the next slide, I've got a picture of the first Spitfire fitted with a single-stage Blair Griffin. That was a really hot-rod little airplane. That, uh, and um, I flew that first in just November 1941. And it went into limited production as the Mark 12 in 1942. It had a very good performance at low and medium altitude and was used mostly in fighter recce duties. But then, the important thing was that the technology of the two-speed, two-stage intercooled supercharger, which had been developed for the Merlin, could be screwed onto the back of the Griffin. And um, this produced uh, a, a spectacular engine, resulting in a power output of around 2,000 300 brake horsepower with more to come. Now we installed it in early 1943 in a Spitfire Mark 8 airplane, that's the one you see on the slide now, which was very similar to the Mark 9, only further developed, and it became the Mark 14 of splendid and spectacular performance. And the next slide, I think, uh, shows a picture of it. We had to put a five-bladed propeller on it, and uh, you may see that various uh, 
control areas are having to grow a bit in the area because it, there was, it was really uh, it, it was really a powerful airplane that um, and it was produced in time for the D-Day invasion and subsequent European campaign which finished off the German war personally I I loved the Mark 14 it was a really a real sports airplane and taking everything into account and taking all its operational capabilities into account I look back on this Mark 14 airplane as personally it's a purely a personal opinion not everybody might agree with it but I think it was the best of the many fighter variants of the Spitfire which operated during the war now um, I want to say a little bit about the Spitfire and the con its contemporaries because of course, the airplane first appeared in production in May 1938, which was one year and three months before the actual outbreak of war between Britain and Germany. And because its developments remained in full production and in full frontline operational service until the war was over, it overlapped, obviously, with many other Allied fighters which were designed and produced a good deal later. Now, most of these fighters were of very different characteristics and direct comparisons are difficult and complex and have to be approached with great caution but a good basis for comparison is to compare the true air speeds plotted against height in level flight at the combat ratings of the engines and I have prepared this slide oh Oh, well, that's just repeating the uh, quantum jump slide, but um, uh, can I have the next one, please? There we are. That's the one. Um, I'm sorry, that's a bit of a complicated slide, but um, these uh, plots of figures, all of which are measured, officially measured figures from the uh, airplane and armoured experimental establishment at Boscombe Down in England. So they're not, they're officially measured figures and they're not company figures. The dates shown against each curve, the top, represent the year in which that particular aircraft entered operational service. There is the Spitfire 1, 1938. There, uh, the growth of the Spitfire performance, there's a Mark 9, 1942 and this Mark 14 44 and the Spitfire 21 which was the very last of the lot um, which really came a little bit too late for the war um, now I've also shown here the P-51B the Mustang 3 with a Merlin engine and of course that was a marvelous airplane and it left the Mark 9 Spitfire behind it was considerably faster than the Mark 9 Spitfire by the time it came out in 1944, the Spitfire 14 with a Griffin engine was already out in service, so they, those two aeroplanes ran pretty level pegging. All this business down here is in their MS gear ratios. Now and then I've shown here things like the Typhoon of 1942 and the Tempest V, of uh, 1944, those aeroplanes had very fine performances at low level, but um, the Spitfire and the Mustang 
really left them for dead at the at the high level. And um, it's just an interesting thing. There's a, the, the P-47 is on here too. P-47 had a, a turbo supercharger which accounts for the rather strange shape of that curve. And that, but that was a very robust and powerful uh, airplane, especially for sort of ground attack duties. Now, um, as to the Typhoon and the Tempest, uh, they were very heavily armed, very powerful. They were marvelous ground attack tank busting airplanes, but they weren't really quite so good at sort of high level combat. But I've often heard it said, although I've not checked the arithmetic, that the Typhoon, armed with 60 pound uh, RP rockets, could loose off a broadside equivalent to that of a six inch cruiser. I, rather, I think that is true, and it's uh, quite a remarkable fact, really. But the, uh, these two aircraft, the Typhoon and the Tempest, really came into their own in the vital fighter ground attack roles, uh, both before and after D-Day in Europe, and they did a fine job. Uh, but in high altitude performance, as I said, the Spitfire remained superior. And the Spitfire, incidentally, developed a useful ground attack capability. It carried quite a lot of stuff. Um, in the way of rockets and bombs, <coughs> but it was not nearly so formidable as the Tempest or the Typhoon, or the Thunderbolt for that matter. The um, Merlin-engined P-51 Mustang, which came into operational service in 1944, was a really very fine aircraft indeed. It carried a greater load of fuel than the Spitfire, and um, it had a longer operational range. And this, combined with its very good altitude performance, made it a first-class escort fighter for daylight bombing raids. And it was used primarily in this role, and uh, it was a, a very fine escort fighter. Now, um, as a tailpiece to this um, slide, it's a, it's a, a matter of... In well, uh, let, let me take, say something else. In general, it can be concluded that the Typhoon and Tempest, 1904, were better and more formidable ground attack fighters than ever the Spitfire was. And it can also be concluded that the Mustang was a better, much better, long-range escort fighter than the Spitfire. But equally, it can safely be concluded that the Spitfire remained pretty supreme amongst Allied fighters in the air superiority and air combat roles, and particularly at high altitude. Um, as a slight tailpiece to this slide, it's on record that when, on, in March 1944, the 31st and 52nd U.S. fighter groups in Italy had their Spitfire Nines, which they'd had for some while, replaced by the P-51B Mustang, pilots were, quote, not sure of the benefits of the change because Colonel John Corkle of the one of the 31st uh, fighter wing took up a P-51 to stage a mock dogfight with Lieutenant Williams in the Spitfire 9 and was completely outmaneuvered. So, he, so that, that is on record somewhere. Um, well, I think I really... Uh, I've got one more thing to tell you about the Spitfire. Um, it's important. Uh, after the... Um, 
successful Allied landings in Normandy in 1944, the temporary airfields set up for the fighters were supplied by group support units situated in the south of England, and there was this, this continual traffic going across the channel. The Spitfire airfields were supported from Ford in, in Sussex, and almost unlimited quantities of beer were supplied to Ford by the generosity of a local brewer for honorary transmission to Normandy, and this was for the use of the boys uh, on these airfields, and the weather was jolly hot and so on at that time. And uh, this was a great gesture, but the strain on the available transport aircraft meant that the beer could not be moved. Somebody on the staff had got his priorities very wrong, and um, so there was all this beer at Ford, and there was no way of getting it... Uh, getting it over to the boys. So, uh, the next slide will show what we did about that. Um, <laughs> and uh, we couldn't get any proper data, stressing data, about the strength of a barrel of beer and whether it would stand up to the strain, so we had to do some flight trials, which are on the next slide. And uh, there's <laughs> there it is. And every time a Spitfire flew from uh, from Ford out to the uh, out to Normandy, and it was happening all the time, they carried a couple of um, 36 gallons barrels of beer. And I can tell you this: that if anybody got bounced by one of the nine over there, um, it was more than his life was worth to jettison the beer. <laughs> um, so there it is. Well, uh, um. I think I've talked too long, but I would like to say one more thing at the end. One of the remarkable things about the Spitfire is the extraordinary sort of affection which uh, everybody who used to fly it, and also a tremendous number of people who used to work on it, and it wasn't a very good aeroplane from a maintenance point of view, it was a hell for some of them of the troops, but everybody looks back on it with very great affection and a certain nostalgia and uh, uh, some while ago um, a chap, a, a journalist in Canada wrote an article about the Spitfire um, which was quite nicely written. Uh, it was written because he'd read somewhere, uh, there was a news item that there were only three Spitfires left. Well that was quite incorrect like most news items but nevertheless this chap this chap wrote a rather nice piece, and the, the Royal Canadian Air Force, as it still then was, but isn't anymore, they got, took this article, and they had it nicely done up and, and uh, sort of framed, and they very kindly gave one to me. And I'm going to read out to you uh, the, one of the final, the final paragraphs of this article, because I think it's quite interesting, and it goes like this. Today, a vintage group of fighter pilots remember her peculiar whistling call as she arched across the sky. Nostalgia brings back the sound of her Merlin engine muttering in the misty half-light of a hundred airfields as crewmen warmed them up for dawn readiness. Some men, who probably feel they live on borrowed time, still wonder how her stout iron heart achieved the mechanically impossible and brought them home alive. I think I've got another slide to come up. Those who did not know her may wonder how mortal man can cherish an undying affection for her gasoline-reeking camouflage memory. 
and no one could tell them. So I think that just about says it all. And thank you for listening to me, and I'm sorry it's taken a long time. Thank you, Jeffrey Quill. We, we've all known and admired the Spitfire for many years, and I think that we can now see why it had such wonderful qualities. Thank you very much for your talk. Jeffrey has offered to answer some questions, and we'll, we'll take some from the audience, and I'll, I will relay them to him, and he'll answer them for you. And I'll, we'll, let's go to the gentleman in the back who is standing up. And The question is, how did the Germans react to the development of the Spitfire, and was a jet engine ever placed in a Spitfire? Um, well, if I could take second question first. No, a jet engine was never put in a Spitfire. Um, it might have been a, not a bad idea to put a Spitfire wing on a, a, an earlier simple jet aircraft, but it was, in fact, never done. Uh, how did the Germans react in the 1930s? Well, I think they, re they reacted uh, in one way, which was called the ME-109. Um, they, they, of course, it was designed before the Spitfire. It was a fine little aircraft, and uh, it also had a great deal of development in it and was developed considerably. But um, I think that's the answer. And I suppose you could say that it was also reacted when the Spitfires started to fly and everybody began to see what it was like. I, I think old Kurt Tonk uh, reacted with the FW-190, too, and that was a fine aircraft. The question is, how many Spitfires are remaining flying in the world? Uh, I saw a list in, uh, published in a magazine in England a little while ago which listed 70 Spitfires still in existence, many of them flying and restored, some of them not, some of them fairly wreck, good wrecks and chaps trying to scratch up some money to rebuild them and so on. But uh, there are a good many in the United States. and. Uh, uh, I know, um, I'm not quite sure how many, and the, in, the, the Italians have just done a marvellous job of restoration on an old Mark 8, which they found in India, shipped it uh, back to Italy, and they got that flying. So I think we could uh, probably scratch up a couple of squadrons if we really tried. <laughs> yes, sir. The question is, was it a difficult aircraft to produce, and were there production problems in uh, producing something of such complex design? Yes, the answer to that is very definitely yes. It was, uh, it was a very advanced technology structure for the time, and uh, a lot of people, when the first contract was placed, and, they were, and they thank you, a lot of people um, thought it was, a lot of experts thought it was too difficult to produce, and, and it would be too difficult to maintain, and the hurricane, on the other hand, was really the technology of the Hawker Hart series of aircraft, built of, of duralumin tube and so on. It was a fine aircraft, the hurricane, but it obviously had everything going for it as far as a production proposition, and that, I think, is why 600 were ordered in the first place, rather than uh, 300 Spitfires. Fortunately, there were people, one of whom was uh, Air Marshal Freeman, who really saw early on that the, this extra performance was really worth having, and he, I think, fought the battle for the production order for the Spitfire. We then got into all sorts of trouble with it. Um, I'm, the labor force at Supermarine in 1938-36, when it was first uh, ordered, was about 1,400. It was a tiny firm, firm. I think the biggest number of aircraft we'd ever built before was about uh, 
um, I forget, I think the biggest production order we'd ever had was for 17 flying boats or something. There, down in Southampton there were problems of finding skilled labour. Uh, a, a tremendous amount of the thing, the job had to be subcontracted out to other uh, firms. But you see, the, the industry was very small in those days and we'd all been sort of, been living since World War I on very small orders and the subcontractors weren't there. I mean, it was a job to get it. The, the, all the wings were subcontracted initially and they got behind. At one time in, uh, in 1937, I think we had uh, something like um, 70 virtually completed, completed fuselages standing in the shop with about four sets of wings. Did, did the Malcolm canopy, the bubble canopy, uh, uh, improve visibility and could you comment on the spiteful? The bubble canopy came in not to improve performance but to improve the rear vision. Uh, you couldn't see much behind yourself in a Spitfire and if you could get your head into the bubble you could have a better view if there was somebody on your tail. Uh, I, uh, I do, did, I remember once hearing that they bubbled the canopy on a Mustang and gained, uh, everybody thought it would create a lot of drag and it gained three miles an hour or something but uh, I, I don't think it actually improved the performance of the Spitfire, but it improved the performance of the pilot. Um, would I like to comment on the spiteful? Yes. Um, in uh, about 1942, we, we knew roughly what was coming out in the way of horsepower from Rolls-Royce, you know, projecting it forward. And we were afraid that um, we were going to hit a situation where Rolls-Royce were producing power which we couldn't use. In other words, that the drag of the air, we'd be running into compressibility problems. Very little was known at that stage about the Mark number characteristic of the Spitfire. We got to know a bit better a bit later on. So we thought we'd better have a new wing because it would be very awkward if Rolls-Royce were turning out, getting up to 3,000 horsepower and we were just hitting the, hitting the drag barrier. So um, it was decided to design a good little laminar flow wing, which it was hoped would have the drag rise pushed further over to the right-hand side of the page. And uh, this wing was designed at the uh, National Physical Laboratory in conjunction with our aerodynamicists at Supermarines. A beautiful job was made of it from an engineering point of view. It was superb, sort of accurate profile, lovely finish and so on. And we put it on a Spitfire 14 initially to uh, try it out. And the results were very disappointing. And to cut a long story short, the Spitfire wing turned out to be a great deal better than everybody had thought it was going to be. And the Spiteful wing turned out to be not as good as everybody thought it would be. So the gap sort of changed. And it didn't offer sufficient performance ahead. But we, we did a new fuselage for it. And it was a good little airplane. But it was already overtaken by the end of the war. Gary Hannafin? Uh, was, was there any specific characteristic of the Spitfire, this wing, its uh, aerodynamics, its engine, its propeller, which provided its performance? Um, I, I think the answer to that is that the uh, Spitfire w was a very low drag airplane at, at the time, and that was principally true due to Mitchell's decision to go for a very thin wing, which went against, as I said, all the aerodynamic uh, sort of wisdom of the day. Um, then, of course, without 
the remarkable achievements of Rolls-Royce uh, in pumping out more and more power, first out of the Merlin and then out of the Griffin, we certainly could not have... Uh, I mean, the, the engine development was absolutely critical to the success of the Spitfire or, or to the success of keeping it in the... keeping its nose out in front. Um, and uh, the... the... the um, uh, drag at high speed when getting into the compressibility regions was remarkably low. No, we got a Spitfire when we did, when some full-scale trials were done at Farnborough in about 1944 to measure at full scale the drag coefficient, and we did some special. I think the aircraft got up to a, a speed of Mark 0.9, still under control, and no other piston-engined aircraft that I'm aware of got anywhere near that. So I think that the answer is it was the Spitfire couldn't have done it without the Rolls-Royce engines, and the Rolls-Royce engines couldn't have done it without the Spitfire. So yes, sir. The question is, wh why did the Spitfire retrain its narrow-tread undercarriage during its development life? Well, um, I think, uh, why did it retain it? There was talk of uh, changing it, but uh, it, it was, uh, I think, there were, with, uh, there were in meeting the schedules and uh, modifying the aircraft in, in such a way as to improve its fighting performance and so on, uh, the uh, undercarry the, the, to put the effort of changing that monumental design change would have been to sort of put a, a nicer undercarriage in, simply didn't occur to anybody. It wasn't, uh, it was, it was, it wouldn't have any priority in the I think uh, when people used to raise, well, it was perfectly all right, as it was, it was and uh, I think it was old Joe Smith who said in a discussion of that sort, he said, well, the only thing to remember about this, the airplane's designed to fly, not to taxi. <laughs> we'll have time for about two more questions, and I'm, I'm, I see about a hundred more hands, so you'll have to forgive me for not, yes, sir. The, the question is, did you fly a contemporary German aircraft, and how did they compare? Uh, I flew an FW, uh, um, an ME-109 in 1940, 109E, uh, and I wished, uh, when I landed, I wished I'd flown, I flew it in October 1940, but by that time I had uh, been f f fighting against them during the, uh, you know, in August and September, and my reaction when I landed, I, said, I wished I'd flown this damn thing before, uh, before I had to fight against it, because I would have treated it with a good deal less respect. You know, you, 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 you tend to uh, sort of uh, paint the enemy a few feet tall, and, uh, uh, but it was a good airplane, but uh, I was also cheered up by the fact that the ailerons were very, very heavy, and so were the Spitfire ailerons. We fixed it later, but I was concerned about that. I also flew in uh, 1942 a captured uh, FW-190, that was a very impressive aeroplane, undoubtedly. Um, and uh, I didn't, there were certain things about it I didn't like, but I suppose I got a bit set in my ways by then. But, um, <laughs> it was, uh, but I did fly those two aeroplanes, and they were, they were fine aeroplanes, no doubt about it. And of course, the 109 went a lot further. They went on developing power out of the DB601, just like Rolls Royce did. And so they developed the performance and the high altitude performance. But I don't think they ever really got the handling very good. But uh, that was it was good enough. Mr. Dahlquist, the last question. What did was there experimentation with fuel injection as, as the Germans did? 
I remember hearing somebody ask that exact question to old Stanley Hooker, who was the great uh, supercharger chap. And he said that um, the way they were developing supercharger, getting the manifold pressures up and up and up, the big problem, of course, was cooling the charge temperature. And uh, therefore, he f that if you squirted the fuel into the mixture, you know, if you were uh, compressing a a fuel-air mixture rather than a pure-air mixture and injecting a fuel later, you kept it, it cooled the charge temperature, and it's simple as that. Uh, I think it was really the old Rolls-Royce business that if it works, leave it alone, you know. Jeffrey <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Quill, it's been a remarkable lecture, and, and I know that there's been millions of questions, and you've had all the answers. Thank you so much for coming.